Our scripture this morning is from Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Amen. Happy Sabbath, Boulder. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, grateful for the view and for the few days we've spent, uh, my family and I, uh, here in uh, the Boulder, well, greater Boulder area, I guess, uh, taking in all the beautiful sights and spending time as a family. Thank you to your pastor for the invitation. Uh, truly humbling uh, to be included in the great work that you guys are doing here at Boulder, all right? Well, that's all the pleasantries. We got that out the way, so let's go ahead and hop right into the Word of God. Amen? Amen. You're probably going to want to bring me down a little bit. All right, amen. Just this past week or so, uh, we were all taken aback by the suicide of Pastor Andrew Stoklein. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. If you do not already know of the situation that happened in California with this pastor, he was age 30, uh, 30 years old, committed suicide, married with three children. He leaves behind three children. The pastor of what many people or many pastors, many guys in ministry or gals in ministry aspire to, he pastored a mega church that he inherited from his father, and he committed suicide, oddly enough or strangely enough for me, the day before he was supposed to finish his latest preaching series entitled Hot Mess, How to Go from Mess to Masterpiece. In fact, it wasn't just a series that he was preaching, but you learn after going through the story that Pastor Stoklein, if I'm saying his name correctly, was actually living the series that he was preaching. He had just returned from four months of a break that he had taken from his church and began the series kind of going over and walking the congregation through what he had himself had been dealing with that led to his break. He was dealing with depression and anxiety issues. He was overwhelmed by having to live up to the expectation of pastoral ministry and life and had to take a four-month break. And when he got back, he preached on a series 
call hot mess from mess to masterpiece. He spoke openly in his series, in his very first sermon, about his struggles with depression and anxiety. He preaches a sermon on the prophet Elijah and how he himself was stuck in a cave on Mount Horeb with suicidal thoughts. His main point was that God wants to meet everybody in their mess. I'm bewildered at the fact that a man who is employed to preach such a hopeful message ends up taking his life, figuring that it is the only way out of the situation that he's in. Uh, I want to say that in the news it was labeled to be a mental health issue due to the instability of his mind, the depression, and the anxiety. And while many of us are probably perplexed by the situation, if given enough thought, we too must admit that for a greater majority of us, we also struggle with mental instability. And for some, this mental instability has led to what I would categorize as sometimes spiritual suicide or spiritual suicidal attempts or even spiritual depression. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I hope so. So I want to just talk to you for a little bit on the topic, the cure for spiritual suicide. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you in the name of Jesus, God, for your grace and your mercy. God, I believe that were it not for your grace, that somebody who walked into this building today should have fallen dead upon stepping foot into your presence. But because you are great and a merciful God, you do not kill us in your presence, but invite us into your presence to worship you. So God, we thank you for the invitation to join together in your house on your Sabbath day. We thank you, God, for the fellowship we have achieved so far, for the music we've heard so far, for the opportunity to give God back to you what is yours. We pray, God, that in this moment that you will just show up, that you will speak so that your people can hear your word. I'm really just asking that you will make good on the promise of your word, that where Jesus Christ is lifted up, that he will draw all men unto himself. So draw us close to you, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. The chapter, chapter 8, begins with the word, therefore, and in order for us to understand what Paul is saying or to really appreciate what Paul is doing in chapter 8 of Romans, to really fully grasp the concept of no condemnation, you have to understand what's happening in chapter 7. I know that Pastor Japheth has already done a wonderful job describing to you what happens in chapter 7, but if you were not here, let's just review very briefly. In the, in the very end of chapter 7, Paul is describing what he believes as a struggle that he's been having. And I'm not sure if it's just that he's having it or he knows that the people in Rome are having this struggle or that all the people across Christendom, he just uh, assumes that they're having a struggle. But he's trying to get them to understand that there's a struggle that's going on on the inside of every single person. It's a constant battling, we would say, of the two natures, that is, of the divine nature and of the carnal nature. Paul tells us that ongoing in each and every one of us is this battle, and it's so strong, the battle of wanting to do one thing and, not doing, the, and, and doing the things you don't want to do, wanting not to do things and doing the very things you don't want to do. Paul talks about the constant battle that rages in each and every one of us, and you can almost feel the tension in the text as Paul gets to this moment where he has no choice but to exclaim, oh, wretched man that I am. 
Now, the thing about the text, though, is not necessarily the exclamation of Paul. It's the question that Paul asks right after the exclamation. It would have been one thing had Paul wallowed in his sorrow, wallowed in his sin, wallowed in his lack of spiritual maturity, but Paul takes it a step further, and the question reveals to us the truths that are necessary in order to understand Romans 8 and verse 1. Paul asks the question. He says, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sin? It's almost as if Paul was having this spiritual conundrum in his own mind as he's writing to the church at Rome where he begins to realize that what they've been dealing with, he's been dealing with, this internal struggle. And as Paul begins to examine himself, he is led to exclaim that there is absolutely no hope and he calls out, who then can save me? And almost as if as soon as he calls out who can save me, it seems that Paul also remembers who can save him. Paul answers his own question, and it's not really an answer, but more of a praise break, as they would say in some churches. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And here's the very first truth that you have to understand in order to fully grasp Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and that is that Jesus Christ has the power to save and deliver. What Paul comes to realize and understand is that there is no internal battle from which Jesus cannot save you. There is no depth, as the Bible says, to which uh, uh, your sins can find you when God removes them. What, what Paul is saying is, although I have the moment where I feel weak and realize my weakness and realize how far I've fallen from grace, thanks be to God because God has provided the answer. Your pastor's already told you in Romans 8 and verse 3 that God said that he provided not just the any answer, but he provided his own son so that the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth would be able to be the sin offering so that it can cover the sins of many. And Paul makes the statement of truth that I can have assurance even though I feel as if I'm struggling between two tent of intention because Jesus Christ has the power to deliver. Everybody with me? I'm guessing that's why you're in the room today, because you believe that Jesus Christ has the power to deliver. But there's another truth that is found in the answer of Paul that we oftentimes overlook. Not just that Jesus has the power to deliver, but Paul also makes a very bold statement in his question. See, Paul doesn't just ask, how can I be delivered, or who can deliver me? He asks to be delivered from something very specific. Paul says, who can deliver me from this body of death? See, if you look at the argument in the struggle of Paul, what you find out is that the struggle is what Paul calls between the law of sin in his mind, and I mean in his flesh, and the law of God in his mind. Paul has already gotten the law of God in his mind. What he's worried about is not his mind, it's his flesh. So Paul says, not who can just deliver me, he knows he's been delivered. What he's saying is, who can deliver me now from my flesh? Paul asks the question, who can deliver me from this body of death? See, what Paul reveals in his question and subsequent answer, he says, Jesus Christ can deliver me. And then he continues, so that because of this deliverance, I serve the law of God in my mind, but the law of sin I serve in my body. Basically, the point that Paul makes is not only does Jesus deliver us, not only does he have the power to deliver, but the mere fact that I struggle between one thing and the next, the mere fact that I wrestle between one thing and the next is evidence that I have been delivered. See, what Paul is saying is, for many of us, 
when we have the struggle of the besetting sin, when we do the thing that we don't want to do and don't do the thing that we want to do, we oftentimes beat ourselves up and say, well, man, there's no way I'm saved. That we'll come down to church, and I'm not sure if you do it here, but the appeal will go well on every Sabbath, and you'll see this. I know where I come from. You'll see the same people every Sabbath responding to the same appeal. Well, Paul is saying, no, 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 the struggle does not mean you're not saved. The struggle is actually evidence that something has saved you. In fact, the Bible lets us know that God gave mankind over to a reprobate mind, which means that if you're not saved, the thoughts of men should be evil continuously. The mere fact that you've got something on the inside that is at war with something wicked in your flesh means that God has put something in you to war against the flesh. See, Paul is not concerned about whether or not God can deliver. He's not trying to preach to the people deliverance in Jesus Christ because of the shed blood. No, no, no. He's already repeated himself a few times throughout the book and said that Jesus Christ has justified us through his death, resurrection, and now his his ministry he'll describe later on. But now his thing is not how do I, uh, uh, his thing is not about the mind. It's about how do I get my mind and my body to align? So he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, the good news, the truths that Paul exclaims or says at the very end of the chapter is what leads Paul to come to an even greater realization or even to remind himself of a greater realization. Paul has already said, "We, we are saved, we are delivered by Jesus Christ. He has the power to deliver. Not only does he have the power to deliver, but I know I am delivered because of the struggle that goes on in my mind. Not only do I have the struggle, but because there is evidence of deliverance, Paul is reminded and reminds the people that because of the deliverance, there is no condemnation. See, Paul is saying that despite everything you deal with on a daily basis, despite your discouragement because of the way your wife treats you or your husband treats you, despite your failings and being honest in your schoolwork, despite the temptation to want to cheat on your taxes, despite the days where you struggle with whether or not to pay your tithe or pay your bills, Paul says you can have all of those struggles, but guess what? There is no condemnation. But it's a conditional statement because there isn't just no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, all right, I'm going to try. I I, I listened to a few sermons here at at Boulder. I didn't really expect to hear too much feedback. That's all right. I'm I'm, going to go ahead and press through it. I'm going to go ahead and press through it. Anyway, the bottom line is that what Paul is sharing with us is good news that many Christians, even through years of being Christians and believers, have yet to fully grasp that Jesus does not condemn you. In fact, if you don't believe me, the most famous Bible text ever quoted in the world is John 3.16. It's the one text that even if you're at a football game, you'll see somebody holding up the placard because they know it has the power to set somebody free if they would just look up the one text. You'll be watching the Super Bowl and there'll be a sign, John 3.16. But what we often miss is John 3.17. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why is that true? Because God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that the world through him could be saved. It's the driving force behind Jesus' statement to the woman called adultery, where everybody else is trying to throw the law at her, trying to throw the book of rules at her, trying to kill her, trying to make her an example, trying to catch Jesus up in his words. And Jesus' one thing to her is, neither do I condemn you. Not because she isn't guilty, but because condemnation's not the reason he came. 
See, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He says, it is, the, it is the, the healthy are in no need of a physician, but the sick, they need me. Jesus did not come in order to hit you upside the head with rules. Jesus said, I do not condemn you. I have come to save you. And for me, that's a reason to rejoice. I'm going I'm to reserve my rejoicing uh, uh, until we have our connect groups, and then I'll go out to my car and I'll let it out in the car. There is no condemnation for me. Despite everything I've done in my past, Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Now, I don't, I don't know what your past looks like. I'm not trying to say that I've had a very terrible past. But what I can say is that even if I begin to make a list of the things that I've done and the thoughts that I've had and the evil things that I've thought when people slam doors in my face or when I say good morning to folk who don't respond to me or when people mistreat my children, the things that go through my mind. And Jesus says all of those things can go through your mind, but because you are in me, I do not condemn you. It's good news. In fact, what Paul is teaching the, the, the church at Rome, is what he's really teaching is that what they need in order to overcome this spiritual suicidal thoughts, this going back and forth, this almost spiritual schizophren uh, schizophrenic behavior, schiz uh, maybe spiritual bipolarism, you may want to call it. What Paul says is that the cure for getting over that kind of a mindset is actually to change your reference point. What do you mean, preacher? Okay, well, Pastor Japheth so beautifully and eloquently put it last week. Paul is having a mental struggle in chapter 7 of Romans, I mean, chapter 7 of, of Romans, right? The, the issue with Paul's entire argument at the end of chapter 7 is that it's filled with a lot of me and I. See, the problem Paul is having and the reason why he begins to get worked up, the reason why he comes to the, to the point where he has no choice but to yell out how wretched he is, is because his reference point had not changed. Paul's reference point was not the fact that he wasn't condemned. His reference point was the fact that he was sinful. See, in order to be cured from a spiritually suicidal mind, you have to learn to change your reference point. The unfortunate truth for many Christians is that while we know what Jesus has done, what God has accomplished through Jesus, while we know that the Holy Spirit of God is available for changing power to lead us into all truth, the unfortunate fact is that many people do not have the right starting point or reference point. Well, what do you mean? Okay, what, what, let, me, let me tell you what I mean. Okay, uh, uh, look, at, look again at Paul's conundrum, internal battle. It was all about himself. It wasn't until he came to the realization that Jesus delivers that he's able to put the struggle behind him, and then the rest of the book is filled with a struggle-less Christian life. See, Paul said, Every time I look at myself, I have to come to the conclusion that I'm wretched. But every time I remember who Jesus is, I have to come to the conclusion that he does not condemn me. What Paul says is in order to make it through this life without struggling mentally, spiritually, you have to get to a point where you change your baseline. And the truth is that while many of us have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have not allowed for it to be our reference point. I believe personally that it's the reason why even in the church of God, people struggle with depression and suicide. I mean, how easy could it be for a pastor to struggle with depression and suicide if all he does is compare himself to other pastors? 
See, our issue as human beings is that what we've done essentially is that we've accepted God, but that made men our rubric for salvation. So what, so what we'll say is, okay, I've joined the church. All right, help me, God, because this, this is not what I was going to say at all. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll say, I've joined the church, right? Fine. I joined the church. I don't know everything. But look at that sister over there. There's something about the way she dressed. Her skirt's kind of long. My skirt's kind of short. I think I need a long skirt. She's been in the church longer than me. She should know better. Or we start having a conversation with people. They start asking us where we eat. And, you know, we start saying, man, we go to, you know, I go to Starbucks every now and again. They're like, Starbucks? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. The spirit of prophecy says that caffeine. And, and then we start to say, oh, man, I drink caffeine. So I need to maybe take a step back because I have not yet reached the same spiritual plane as this person. And it's not just that we do it in our spiritual lives, but we also do it in our, in our everyday life. Every day, despite the calling that God has put on our hearts, we measure ourselves up to the calling God has put on somebody else. And so you've got kids and students probably right here at the University of Denver who God has never even called to study in college who are missing out on their calling in life because they're simply trying to be like everybody else. Or you've got a mom who is struggling, thinking she's the worst parent in the world because she gets tired from just the two kids she has, while another lady in church has five kids and she looks like she's never tired. Our issue is we spend all of our time holding ourselves up to other people. When the truth is that if we held ourselves up to Jesus, yes, it would, you know what Ellen White says in, in, in Steps to Christ, the more I behold Christ is the more I behold my own faults and flaws, but it is also the more that I realize how much I need Christ. See, the problem is if you hold yourself up to another human being, all you will see is wretchedness. But if you hold yourself up to God, you will not only see your wretchedness, but you will see a solution for your wretchedness. Paul says, I'm wretched. But when I realign myself with the proper reference point, everything changes. All right, so, what, so, what, so, so what, what, what are you saying, preacher? This is what I'm saying. We have to learn how to focus on the ministry of Christ and not ourselves. Ministry of Christ, that is death, burial, resurrection, and his current ministry and the fact that he's coming again. What we don't need to focus on, according to Paul, is the law. And this is, I'm going to make this statement. I'm going to pray by God's grace that it is as true as I believe it to be. Whenever you focus on yourself, you automatically focus on the law. And here is the news for everybody in the room who may be tempted with focusing on the law. The law cannot save you. Well, what do you mean, preacher? I thought the law was a good thing. In fact, some scholars have said that the Ten Commandments is only a mere reflection of the character of God. And if it's a reflection of the character of God, surely it must be able to save me, but the law cannot save you. Any, any law enforcement individuals in, in, the, in the church? Any, any police officers? All right, let's do it this way. The most common law broken among mankind is speeding. I know this to be true, and I won't tell you why. I just know it to be true. When you head down 36, the speed limit at one point is 60, it goes up to 65. If you go to 75, 80 because you're feeling good on that day and then you don't see a cop in sight, but then you get pulled over, when the cop pulls you over on the side of the road, what he's going to do is the first thing, when you say, hey, officer, how are you doing? Is everything all right? He's going to say, no, everything's not all right. The reason he knows that everything is not all right is because he has the law. Well, what do you mean? 
because your speedometer said 7580, but the law, which has been posted on the placards on the side of the highway, says 65. So when he holds up the law, he's able to look at the law and look at your speedometer and tell you something is not right. But what he cannot do is save you by the placard on the side of the highway. See, the placard tells you it's 65 miles an hour, but the placard cannot pay your speeding ticket. Nor can the placard put its foot on your, on your brakes to slow you down to make sure you go 65. It only lets you know that where you're going is where you're not supposed to be. The law cannot save you. In fact, Paul says, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the law. The problem with the law is not God, because if God is God, how can he create something that is imperfect? I have to say that for the person in the room who may not be Adventist, who feel like, you know, we're just lawmongers, and all we talk about is the seventh, you know, seventh day Sabbath and keeping the law. No, no, no. The law of God is absolutely perfect because it's the law of God. That's why Paul continues on. He says, it's not that the law is imperfect. What, it, what happened is the law was weak through human flesh. I, I, I think I've been up here about 20 minutes. I'm trying to try to move as fast as I can. All right. Weak through human flesh. In the book of Exodus, God takes the children of Israel out of Egypt. They do not know who he is. They've been in there for a little while. Some say 400. I'm inclined to think 200-some years based on the, the timelines. 400 years is a very long time. Some people would have been too old to be still alive at the time. So that's, all, that's neither here nor there. They were there for a long time. As a result, there are many things about Israel that God has to correct. One of them is he has to reintroduce himself to them because the God that they've known for the past few hundred years, his name has been Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh lives literally in a temple that's kind of just like the temple that God is about to tell Israel to build in the desert. And so God reorients himself. He introduces himself with the Ten Commandments. What God does before the Ten Commandments, I love it, in chapter 19, God says, Moses, let me introduce myself to the people. First of all, did you just see what I did in Egypt? I'm a bad man. And because I did that, I can do anything. In fact, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. All I need from you is blind, is, is, is blind obedience and faith in the fact that I can do what I, what I, what I said I'm going to do. In chapter 19, Moses goes to the people, says, God says he wants you to be a special nation. The people reply, okay, well, everything you say will do. You, gotta, you can't miss it you can't, because there's significance in what they say. They've just spent hundreds of years in slavery. They've been owned by another king. They just watched the king that owned them get defeated by a new king in the, in, the, in the Dead Sea, the Red Sea. So based on the tradition of that time, they are now owned by God, who is their new king. In those traditions, they wouldn't have just said, man, you're God. They would have said, you now own us. We are now your slaves. God is like, no, 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 I don't need that from you, but they can't help themselves. They're like, listen, we just built all kinds of stuff in Egypt. Whatever you say to do, we'll do it. Moses says, God, the people says, we'll do what you say. God says, are you sure? And then you get a whole bunch of rules. God says, here's all the stuff you're going to have to do if you, in fact, say you want to do it. People say in 24, Moses, don't worry about it. Everything the guy, everything God says, we're going to do it. All of that stuff. If a man kills another man's ox, we're going to kill the man. If a person pokes out this person, we're going to do all the stuff God says to do. And then in chapter 24, not only do they say they'll do it, but they also make a blood covenant saying that they will do stuff that God never really asked them to do in the first place. Of course, you know, once you put blood on it, that's that. But the funny part of the story is not even a couple days later, the Bible goes through a transition. It talks about what Moses, all that gives the fullness of what God gave Moses before they signed the covenant. And while Moses up on the mountain, not even too long after they signed the covenant, what do they do? You know the story. They build a golden calf. Why? Because they as human beings are unable to live up to the covenant. It's not that the covenant was bad. The people were bad. 
All right, let's put it another way that you might understand. <laughs> Israel went to the Denver Broncos game, okay? I would prefer a Giants game, but I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Colorado. I'm going to tread lightly. So they went to a, they went to a Broncos game. The announcer came over to PA. He said, Israel, I know they said, everybody look under your seat. Under your seat, you're going to find keys to a brand new car. Israel looked under their seat. They had gone through a lot of rough times. They finally got a ticket to a game that they could finally afford. They looked under their seat. There's a key to a brand new car. They said, if you got the key, come to the office. The person who is sponsoring the car wants to thank you and give you the car. Israel takes the key to the office. They go to get the car. The person says, the car is yours. Israel says, are you sure you want to just give me the car? The person says, no, 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 it's, it's your car. Israel says, but I would, I would prefer to make payments on it if, if I could, <laughs> you know, just to ensure that this is not some kind of scam. The person says, now, I don't need you to make payments, but if you want to make payments, I can draw up the contract. Israel says, hey, let's make the payments. Israel signs the contract. And not even a month goes by and Israel defaults on a free car, not making payments on a car they never had to pay for. <laughs> and how do you know it's true? You got to look at what God does in Exodus. I'm going to get back to Romans because God says right after the law of God and after some of the, the stuff God gave Moses initially for them to say, come back, we'll do it again. God says, what I really intend to do is in chapter 24, build me a sanctuary. Why? Not so that you can keep my laws, but so that I may dwell among you because that's what God had intended the whole time. Well, how do you know this to be true, preacher? I'm not just making this stuff up. Because when they built the sanctuary, where did God put the Ten Commandments? Come on, Adventists. I know y'all know y'all your sanctuary message. The Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant all the way in the most holy place where no one from Israel could go. The law of God that they swore to keep, God put it as far away from them as he could get it. In fact, Israel only had to walk through the door and bring an offering into the sanctuary, and then they walked out. They didn't have to go to the table of shewbread. They didn't have to light any candles. They didn't have to do any real washing. Everything else was taken care of them, but they wanted to pay for it. So Paul says, this is what you got to understand. God had already had, the lamb had already been slain from the foundation of the world. You only had to accept that there would be no condemnation. And so we've got folk who are killing themselves to keep rules in order to secure salvation that has already been secure. Okay, I'm almost, I'm almost done. Almost done. Paul says, Christ himself has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Of the law. If we, we, we change our reference point, and I'm going to say this, we'll, leave, we'll move off of, off of reference points. The way you change your reference point is by learning to believe and not simply know. See, Paul says in Romans 8, 2, the spirit of life in Christ has set you free. He says then in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Earlier, because he's the guy that likes to repeat himself in Romans 4, 24, he says, now that, now, now, not for his sake only was it written that it would be credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. See, the problem that we have is not that we don't know what God is capable of. 
It's not that we don't know that there's no condemnation because we've heard it so many times. The problem is that we're having a hard time believing that it's really true. And at some point, we're going to have to believe that if the word of God says it, it must be true. See, when we know there's a God, we know that the world is evil. But when we believe there's a God, we take heart because he's overcome the world. When we know there's a God, we know that there will be political corruption and wars and rumors of wars. You know that stuff when you know there's a God. But when you believe there's a God, you do not fret because he's the one that sets up kings and brings them down. When you know that there's a God, you understand that weeping may endure for a night. But when you believe in a God, you hold on to the truth that joy comes in the morning. When we know that there's a God, we know that we have besetting sins. But when we believe there's a God, we claim promises like he that hath begun a good work and you shall bring it to completion. When we know there is a God, we know that the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. But when we believe there's a God, we know that he has come so that we may have life and have it more abundantly. See, when we believe there's a God, we can say like Paul, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Why? Because as Paul says it, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. That's what happens when you believe there's a God. Okay. I'll move on. I think, I think we get the point. I think we get the point. If we're going to be cured from a spirit of suicide, we need, again, to change our reference point. Changing our reference point means believing and not simply knowing. What it also means, according to Paul, is that once we believe, our only responsibility is to walk in the Spirit. That's, that's it. All right, let's make the appeal, I guess. This. <laughs> Paul says, because of what Jesus has done, because of what he has accomplished, because the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free, all he needs you to do is walk. See, and the funny thing is when you read Paul, you feel like this is some new theology that Paul's developing, but this is not new. Jesus did the same thing to the rich young ruler when he said, all of these I have done, but what yet I lack? Jesus says, listen, the one thing you lack is go sell your stuff. He says, but Jesus, I've done that too. He says, okay, well then come and follow me. He says, you want eternal life? Wherever I go, you walk behind me. Okay. I guess the problem with that is, Maybe the problem he had is, if Jesus says, follow me, we can't really define follow me. There's no way for us to quantify follow me. There's no way for us to chart our progress on follow me. Because after we take three steps and think that we're in the right direction, God is the kind of God who will say, okay, now make a left. Go to that dead end and wait there for me. I'm going to go get somebody else to come right back and get you. And we're like, well, Jesus, what kind of thing is this? You told me to follow you, and you brought me to a dead end. We, don't, we can't control follow me. Paul says you have to learn how to walk in the Spirit. Paul repeats himself, the same message he said to the Galatians, Galatians 5.16. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. See, what Paul is trying to get at is the Spirit has already set you free. Your job now is to exist in freedom. The Spirit has already taken the shackles off, Paul says, so all you have to do now is leave the prison. The Spirit has already set you free. Now rely on the Spirit to change your life and dictate your daily life. Because we are not only saved by grace through faith, but we're also changed by grace through faith. We're also directed by grace through faith. 
We will also see him coming in his likeness by grace through faith. Our job is to continue to walk. Now, let's do this. If we are going to walk in the Spirit, Paul says we have to do this very simple thing. We have to learn to feed our minds with the things of the Spirit. Now, this is the part where it just gets very simple, so I'm not going to say anything deep from here on out. Is that fine? If you're going to walk in the Spirit, you need to feed your mind with the things of the Spirit. We all heard it before. You are what you eat. You drink enough carrot juice, you will eventually begin to turn orange. That's just a fact of the matter. Whatever you put in, we know to be true, is what you will get out. So we want to be saved by Christ, made like Christ, live by Christ, then we're going, to be, we're going to have to put Christ in us. Paul even goes so far as to say, put on Christ and make no provision for your flesh. What Paul says is simply, those who walk in the Spirit, they're not doing anything complicated. They're not tripping over themselves trying to keep stuff and looking at their watch to make sure that the sun went down. And they're not like, man, did Serena beat Venus? Man, we got two minutes of sunset left. Can you, you, can you Google it for me? People who walk by the Spirit aren't doing that, Paul says. What Paul is saying is that people who live by the Spirit simply feed their minds things of the Spirit. So what are you saying, preacher? Well, I'm a younger man, not that young. I have some gray hairs. They do not define me. Uh, but I'm, I'm not that. I'm, I'm a young man. So some people will be able to get what, get what I'm going to say. If all you put in your mind is Game of Thrones, I don't have that kind of crowd. Somebody's like, what is Game of, what is game, what is game of Thrones? <laughs> you know, Lord of the Andals, you know, Ear to the Iron Throne, that kind of thing. The bottom line is if all you put in your mind is Game of Thrones, all you will get out is Game of Thrones. I'm just saying if all you put in your mind is Handmaid's Tale, then after a while, the only Bible you will quote is, may the Lord open. <laughs> if all we feed our minds is left versus right, red versus blue, black versus white, that's all we'll ever get out. Was that too much? I hope so. I hope so. Because studying politics will be okay for earth, but it will never be enough to get you to walk golden streets. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't pay attention to politics. But what I'm saying is those who walk in the spirit realize that at some point, even the folks you vote for will have to make up their minds who they serve. That at some point, even the systems that we live to support will have to bow their knees to the ultimate system of the ultimate God. And it doesn't make sense to fill my mind with all the bad and negative and left this and all that other good stuff if I'm not going to also fill my mind with the things of the Spirit. What Paul is saying is whatever you put in your mind is what you'll get out. What he's saying is the reason why the struggle is as hard as it is is because you're feeding the wrong thing. I know this to be true. When I was in high school, I used to listen to in New York, the station was called Hot 97. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you can tell by the name of the station what kind of music they played on the station. It was, it was called Hot 97. And I'm going to be very, 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 very truthful and vulnerable with you guys. When I was in high school, I had a very, I had a very serious issue. Now, I went to church. I was a pathfinder and all the good stuff. Um, I played Bible Bowl. I knew my Bible back to front. But I had, I had a problem. I, 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 I cursed a lot. I did. It's the truth. I'm not ashamed to say it. If you want to judge me, that's fine, because there's therefore no condemnation to them 
who are in Christ Jesus, so please, <laughs> judge away. I did, I did. I, 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 I had a profane, a profane mouth, and, you know, one of the things that I noticed about my daily routine when I was in high school, because I really struggled with it, and I was like, God, I mean, I'm not asking you to make me perfect because a perfect Christian in high school is kind of weird, but the very least you can do is take away this propensity to use bad language. And, and I remember going through my daily routine and trying to figure out what is it that makes me do this stuff. And I, I came to realize that every night I would go to sleep and leave Hot 97 playing on my radio. For eight to nine hours every night, all I was hearing while sleeping was profanity. No wonder that during the day when I got up, it's almost said the only thing I can regurgitate. What I'm saying simply is, whatever you put in is what you'll get out. Okay. Okay, so we got to change our reference point. We do that by believing, not, not just knowing. We do that by walking in the Spirit. Paul says, whatever you get in, this you will get out. Now, here is the, the, here is the interesting thing about what Paul says, because many Christians will say, well, Preacher, that sounds like works to me. Are you saying, because Paul says, guard the avenues of your mind. Are you saying that to fill your mind with the Spirit, with some things we actually have to do? When Paul says, make no provision for the flesh, I mean, what, what are you saying? I'm, I'm, what he says, he's like, yo, if you, if you know you like alcohol, then don't go close to, to the liquor stores, what is basically what Paul is saying. And somebody's like, well, isn't that, isn't that, isn't that works? If I'm, if I'm making that effort, I thought that Jesus is the one who changed me. And I, 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 I have to admit, it is. It is works. It is. And, and I'm not ashamed to admit it because the Bible says that faith without works is dead. The problem, though, is you have to put works in the proper context. But what do you mean? All right, let's do it this way. Let me tell a story, and then I'm, I'm, I'm going to close because I, I think, I think I've, we've heard enough of, of me talking. So I'm just. Let me read these for you real quick. Romans 8, 10 through 11. This is where we finish today. If Christ is in you through the body, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. 11, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 1 through 2. He says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, your spiritual act of worship, and do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind daily, then you will be able to discern what is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul says, if you commit your mind to the things of the Spirit, Jesus takes care of the things of the flesh. I'm not sure if I'm not, should I read, should I read it again? Paul, I didn't, Paul said, if you commit your bodies as a living sacrifice, and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, I'll stop. Let's do it this way. Where's the praise team? Where you guys at? Where's the band? Let's do it. Let's start closing. Let's do it this way. Matter of fact, let me get two people. Can I just get two people? I want to demonstrate something. We're talking about works. We're talking about what our job is. Let's just demonstrate it this way. Let me just get two people. Uh, man, I'm trying to remember his name. I'm trying to remember his name. Kiefer. Ha ha. You know I was going to call you. Let's do it. All right. Okay. Kiefer's hair is looking really good, by the way. I just, just need to say that. Okay, your name? Kevin. Kevin and Kiefer. So I tried to get a house the other day. I will not disclose to you how that went. Based on the, 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 the illustration, you may be able to ascertain. So Kiefer 
wants to get a car. Now, this is not the same situation as Israel getting the car for free. This is a different kind of situation. Kiefer just got employed. They moved him out to Boulder, where Kiefer is originally from. Kansas. Kansas, where I live. And I know for sure the standard of living in Kansas is a lot lower than the standard of living in... And I also know we have the same job, so I can almost guess what you make. All right. <laughs> living in Boulder, coming from Kansas. That's okay. That's enough context for me. Praise the Lord. But Kiefer is like, man, I just got to Boulder. I just finished college. I want to get a car. So he goes down to the bank. Gets, he goes to get a loan. The bank says, um, Kiefer, it seems that um, that day when they came to, to you went to Union? No. Where'd you go? University of Arkansas. You went to Arkansas. He said, man, remember that day when they came down uh, uh, over by the student union and they made you sign that thing and you got a credit card in the mail? You didn't mean to sign up for it? And, uh, and uh, well, uh, there's some stuff on your credit report, man. Looks like you made some bad choices in, in college. Your credit is terrible. I mean, it's a zero. It's not a six. 50, it's not a 520. Kiefer, it's a, it's a zero. It's a zero. So Kiefer's like, man, what am I supposed to do? Because I really need to get a car because there's no way, as much as people in Colorado like to hike and bike, that Kiefer is going to do that to get to work every day. There's just no way it's going to happen. So Kiefer goes over to Kevin because he knows Kevin. And the bank has a policy that says that even though Kiefer does not qualify for the car, that he can still get a car if he can find somebody else that has the proper credit. So he goes to Kevin, and they run Kevin's credit. Kevin's got outstanding credit. What's outstanding credit? He has 875. I don't even know if that's possible. Is it 850 is the highest? He's got 875. Not only does he have an 875, but what he also has is, what he doesn't tell anybody, is he's filthy rich. So what the bank does is they take his bank statements and his credit and run it, and then they say, well, he can co-sign on your loan, so now Kiefer can get the car. So here's the question. What should Kiefer do now that he's getting the car? You can bet that Kiefer, who understands what it's like not to have the credit necessary and has been given someone else's credit, will make every necessary payment because somebody else's credit is on, is on the line. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, you, got, you guys can sit down. You, got, you guys can sit down. You guys can sit down. Now, if your credit is not 850, I'm speaking that into your life today in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. And Kiefer, we're, we're speaking against zero credit. The point, the, point, the point that I'm making is we are not condemned because Christ in his gracious mercy has given broke human beings with zero credit something they don't deserve but it doesn't mean that we get to just live any way we want to the good news first of all is that Paul says that because of what he's done if you have the spirit you can live with peace which means that I've given you the cure for all the depressing thoughts and all the all the going back and forth but he says but now what I need from you is to operate as if though you've got perfect credit Go out and live the kind of life that says my bank account is full. Go out and be the kind of Christian that says that I've got more to give than meets the eye. Go out and live the kind of life that pulls people to Jesus Christ, not because you're wretched, but because you're not condemned. You know, I believe this in my heart. Now sit down. 
I believe that if the people of God would believe what is written in Romans 8 verse 1, it would help us to become the kind of people necessary to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. A people who can say we don't just have good services, we do not just look good, we do not just keep the word, word for word, and we don't just know prophecy. But we can introduce you to a God who says, I have come not to condemn the world, so that the world through me can be saved. Jesus is saying, listen, if you give me your mind, I can take care of the rest. And I can work magical things in your life. The kind of things that no other religion can promise, Jesus promised to you. He said, you don't even have to work for it. You just have to believe it, honor me in it, and watch me do magnificent things to your life. You know why it's possible? Because there's no condemnation.